Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome to our service. Welcome to visitors that are joining us. We're glad each of you can be here with us. We invite you to worship. Our youth are missing here this morning. They are at their annual winter retreat. And I found out a few minutes ago that they're actually joining us through live stream. So youth, welcome to our service as well. Should we pray? Thank you, Father, for allowing us to come into your house this morning freely to worship, to meet you here. And we've already lifted our voices in song. And I just pray, Lord, that the words of the songs, as they still resonate in our hearts and echo in our minds, Lord, we, we desire um, through that to just to further worship you this morning. Lord, help us to empty our minds and to shut off our thoughts of things that maybe have troubled us and help us, Lord, to draw nearer to you and to, to gaze upon you, Lord, with expectation and with hope and with assurance that you are here and you will give us what we need this morning. And Lord, may through everything here, may you be honored and glorified. Through Christ's name we pray, amen. I might right away ask one of the ushers to bring me some water. I'm a little dry this morning, and I don't have anything up here. <clears throat> Every year in New York City, there is a marathon. I've never run in it, and I don't know if any of you have either. But uh, it's quite an event. Thousands of people come into the city for this event. And it's, uh, it's pretty far. It's about 26.2 miles to run this marathon. And so you can imagine what it's like being jostled around in a crowd trying to run this, this marathon. I'm sure as the miles tick away, the, the crowd kind of thins and the fast runners get out ahead. But in 2013, a lady by the name of Joy Johnson ran this race. And <clears throat> she, uh, as she was running the race, she stumbled, thank you, Marlon, at about mile marker 20 in the, in the race, and she stumbled and she hit her head. And medics wanted to take her to the hospital, but she said, no, she wants to get up and finish the race. So she finished the race. She ended up finishing the race in 7 hours and 57 minutes, which for me would probably be record time. In fact, I don't know, I, I probably wouldn't make it if it was me. But 7 hours and 57 minutes, but it was actually 3 hours longer than it had taken her in the past, in her peak. Well, this lady, Joy Johnson, she was actually... 86 years old, and she ran this race in just under eight hours. <clears throat> She'd done it many times, but the day before she ran this race, she was interviewed by a newspaper, and, and of course, a lot of the younger runners were so impressed with this 86-year-old woman running this marathon that they took pictures with her on Saturday, and the race was run on Sunday, and they took pictures uh, with her, and, and uh, she said, you know, she said, I don't I'm going to be at the back of the pack running this race, but she says, I don't mind. I'm just, I'm grateful, and I praise the Lord that I get to get out of bed every morning and run. A lot of people my age are in wheelchairs, and she was just grateful to be there. She said, you know, I'm going to run until the day that I drop. And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die in my tennis shoes. She says, I just don't know when I'm going to quit. Well, Monday morning after the race, she told her sister, who was also long, 83-year-old sister, that she's feeling tired, and so she's going to just lay down and rest for a bit. And she laid down to rest in her tennis shoes, 
and she never woke up. What does it take to live a life where we run until the end? What kind of vision does it take for a woman like this to be able to enter her 80s, be able to run a race? I'm not suggesting that you should go train for a marathon, but life is a marathon in so many ways. And the question for all of us is, are we going to make it? Are we going to get there? And what's it going to take to get there? And I thought it would be interesting this morning. I'm not going to do this because we wouldn't, I, I shouldn't even be preaching if this is what we would do, but it would be interesting to me to have everybody here who is maybe over the age of 70 to just reflect and maybe stand up and tell us as you reflect over your life, what would you do differently if you had another chance at it? I've heard stories over the years of people who are on their deathbeds saying things like, you know, I wish I'd have taken more risks. I wish I'd have done more with my family. I wish, you know, a lot of those things that come up. And I wonder what we could learn from the older ones in our midst here. And maybe you have grandparents or others that are older in your life who are still running the race. But something about many years behind us gives us perspective. And as we, as we look back, you know, what could those of us who are still running, we're still in the middle of our race, and we still maybe have a ways to go. We're, we're not even at the halfway mark. Or for the youth, you're just, you're really young, and you're, you're starting off your race. What would the older ones have to say to us? All of us know who Billy Graham is. He has, he's uh, died a number of years ago now, but an evangelist for many, many years, many decades of, of evangelism. And we could probably look at a man like Billy Graham and say, now there was a guy who ran the race. And he was clear about his purpose, and he was, he was diligent and all that. But, you know, even a man like Billy Graham had a few regrets. And I actually got this off of, off of the Billy Graham <clears throat> website, some of his comments on things about life. And on, on one, he made a comment about regrets. And this was already probably 15 years ago, so it was a number of years before he died. But he was aging and reflecting over a lifetime of ministry. And this is what he said. Although I have much to be grateful for, as I look back over my life, I also have many regrets. I have failed many times and would do many things differently. For one thing, I would speak less and study more, and I would spend more time with my family. When I look back over the schedule I kept 30 or 40 years ago, I'm staggered by all the things we did and the engagements we kept. Sometimes we flitted from one part of the country to another, even from one continent to another, in the course of only a few days. Were all those engagements necessary? Was I as discerning as I might have been about which ones to take and which to turn down? I doubt it. Every day I was absent from my family is gone forever. Although much of that travel was necessary, some of it was not. I would also spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer, not just for myself, but for others. I would spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not only for sermon preparation, but to apply its message to my life. That one hit me right between the eyes. <clears throat> it is far too easy for someone in my position to read the Bible only with an eye on a future sermon, overlooking the message God has for me through its pages. 
And I would give more attention to fellowship with other Christians who could teach me and encourage me and even rebuke me when necessary. About one thing I have absolutely no regrets, however, and that is my commitment many years ago to accept God's calling to serve him as an evangelist of the gospel of Christ. I was impressed by that. Even though he looked at, the, at his life and said, this, I, I did my purpose, he still looked back and said, you know, if I had another shot, I would spend more time with my family. I would spend more time with God for my own personal growth, and I would spend more time with God's people. Is that any different? Is that really any different than what we might hear this morning from some of the older ones in our midst? I don't know. But how do you develop a vision for your life that where you come to the end of, the, of life, you say, yeah, this was what it was about. I have no regrets. And we have opportunities today to still make a, a, a change of course if we need to. You may not consider yourself a visionary. I personally don't see myself as a visionary. When I see someone who has vision, sometimes it seems to just bleed out of certain people. You know, it seems like it's a gift. They just always have, they see something in the future that's worth striving for. In their personal life, maybe in their business, for the church, for ministry. They have a vision. And I've, I've wondered sometimes, what does it take to be that way? Is it, is it something you drum up? Is being a visionary something that you, you know, you try to be creative and you try to come up with all these ideas? Because every one of us, at some level, needs to have a vision for life or we're going to be aimless, we're going to be purposeless. All of us know who Michelangelo was. Uh, I had the privilege of being in the Sistine Chapel about 20 years ago over in Italy, in Rome. And it is a fascinating place. And we know that Michelangelo painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And I think there's, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's a, up to 300 different people painted in that ceiling. But the process that it took to get that done is amazing. And maybe if you get a chance, you'll have to research that. But I don't believe Michelangelo necessarily envisioned himself with this task, but he ended up being, being commissioned for the task, and he ended up having to do it pretty much alone. And the type of painting it was, was not just, you know, getting some paint and, and painting a wall. It was actually something called fresco painting, which is you had to mix fresh plaster and put the plaster on the wall, and then you, you painted into the plaster, and as the painting dried, and as, as, the, as the plaster dried, the, the painting became a part of the wall itself. It was not just a coating, but the, the color is actually in the wall. It's in the plaster. And so every day as he would get on his scaffold, he had to rub, he had to rub this plaster and then he had to color it well first of all I think it said he would rub the plaster and then he would maybe draw an outline of what the image should be like and then he filled that in with paint and that paint became a an actual part of of the wall itself but imagine Michelangelo looking up at just a bare ceiling now if I if that was me and I'd look at a bare ceiling I think I'd just I'd give up I don't know what I would do but somehow he envisioned something there and he said wow what could this truly be and I don't believe the chapel had actually been built with that in mind. It's not a very large chapel. In fact, I was a bit underwhelmed by its size, but I was overwhelmed by what I saw inside. But, but he, was, he was told to put these images there. And so as he looked at this, in his mind's eye, somehow he saw, he, he saw an end. He saw what this could be. And it says that as he, throughout this process, there's a number of years that it took to do this, 
he would read and reread through the Old Testament, getting the stories in, in, in his mind. And he captured scenes of the Old Testament, all with the intention of displaying uh, the process from creation to uh, man needing Christ and all these different images. But it's an amazing thing. But as I, as I look at a man like Michelangelo, and, and when he saw that bare ceiling, what did he envision? And as you see the rest of your life ahead of you, what do you envision? Every one of us here, I believe, are citizens of the kingdom of God. If you're born again, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus called it. And your purpose in life is defined by that. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The all things means he'll provide for you, that the daily necessities will be given to you. But he says, seek first God's kingdom. Don't worry, don't worry about everything else. I mean, those are, it's important that we work and that we, we have to do the things that we have to do. But he says, make the kingdom of God first, and those things will follow along. And so as you consider your own life, um, if you're like me, maybe you look ahead sometimes and there's just, you know, it, it, looks, it looks like a blank slate and there's just not a lot of clarity. So how do you have a vision for life if you don't have clarity? How do you get motivated to run when you're not sure totally what you're running toward? Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I'd like to just have a few reflections from the wisest man who ever lived. And hear a bit what he had to say as he reflected about life. Start in verse 1, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. He says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I'm going to stop there for right now. The last part of that chapter, he's talking kind of about, uh, when he talks about the light, it's, I think he's talking about how good it is to live and to see the sun and to be cheered up, but at some point, the end of life will come. We're going to leave that last part at this point. This is a passage, or this, especially the first verse, is one I've, I've heard many times and I never quite understood it, and as I studied it, I still don't know if I fully understand it, but there's different um, maybe ideas of what this could mean. When he says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Kind of interesting symbolism. Um, one thing I gather from this is a sense of, of maybe generosity or of just, just letting go. If you think about... Um, merchants back in, the, in those days, when they, when they filled a merchant ship with goods and you launch the boat, you know, the one who launches the boat and he's standing on shore watching it go, he's kind of lost control. It's kind of out of his hands now. But he says, go ahead and launch because you could sit here all day and be worried about the outcome, but if you never, if you never launch, nothing's going to happen. And in a, in a sense, I can almost see that in, in God's kingdom, when Jesus talked about 
seeking first his kingdom or, or pursuing um, uh, treasure in the kingdom of God, there's a sense where you just you be liberal with what you have. I think this could, this could be referring to a generosity. Um, some places, some commentaries thought this was talking about giving to the poor. You know, just give liberally. And when he says in verse 2, give a serving to seven or eight, you know, sometimes you're not sure if, if, if the giving you're doing is, is it all going to a good place? But he says rather, Solomon's saying rather than just holding back, then he says, just give it. Be liberal with what you have. And then he says, it will come back to you. And I don't believe he's saying this in a sense to say, give so that you can always receive. And yet the principle, it's true. When Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom, somehow it comes back to you. He supplies your needs. And so I, I almost uh, sense Solomon kind of appealing to, to his audience, whoever he's talking to, is that, you know, you can wait around in life and maybe you don't have a clear sense always of where you should be going. But wherever you're at, live generously and serve generously. Verse 3, he says, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves. In other words, once the clouds get full of water, they can't hold it. I mean, even nature makes the clouds dump the water, and there it is. And there's a sense that just let it go. Be, be very free with what you have. Uh, at the end of that verse, he says, and if a tree falls to the north, or to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. That's a similar concept, but I was struck by that imagery as I was trying to think, well, what's he trying to say? So when a tree falls, it could go either way. It could go north, it could go south. And I thought about, I thought about us as people, and I even of myself. When I think about what my purpose in life is, and sometimes I think that, um, you know, you kind of wait around sometimes, and you have good intentions. You know, oh, I should do, I should do that. You know, I should reach out more. I should be in the Word more, or I should be, you know, well, but then the next thing you know, another year goes by, and nothing's changed. And we have all these good intentions. But one day, one day, the tree falls. I think it's talking about at some point we die. The tree falls. It might go to the north. It might go to the south. But where it lies, it's where it lies. You don't change anything after that. And I think about someone who comes to the end of life, and, and as they're, they're, they're sensing the tree is about to fall, think about regrets you could have realizing that, you know what, my whole life, this is what I was doing. And now I realize the tree's going to fall here, and that, I don't have any more opportunity. That's the end. That could, even be, that could even have eternal ramifications. When the tree falls, wherever it lies, that life is done. That life is complete. And I can almost see Solomon saying, make sure that whatever you do, that you're living for God in this time, or that you're being generous, or that you're living a life where, where you just don't hold back, but, but be free with what God has given you, whether that's with your possessions, whether that's with your talent, or even just your energy. What am I, what am I all about? The next verse there, um, verse 4, it kind of is, is uh, something like the farmers struggle with sometimes. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. You know, in this day and age, man, maybe you have a business that is weather-dependent. But, you know, we've got our forecasts. You know, I'm, you know, on, the, you know on your phone, beginning of the week, you're looking at the forecast. Ah, you know, probably can't harvest Wednesday, or we probably can't plant this day. And, and you're, just, you know, you're glued to that forecast, and, and it, it kind of sometimes can change your behavior a little bit. And there's been times where, in the end, the forecast was, was wrong. And you're thinking, man, we should have been out there prepared to harvest, or we should have been out there 
But, you know, we're looking at the clouds, and I think he's saying at times, if you're always waiting for perfect conditions in life, if you're always waiting for the prime opportunity, yeah, I should go talk to this person, or I should go see my neighbor, but, yeah, it's a busy week, you know, and maybe, maybe next time. And, and we're always looking at the clouds and saying, boy, the conditions aren't right. You know what happens if you're a farmer? Eventually, you miss your planting window. You know, it was ideal planting time, but you kept worrying about the clouds. It could rain, or it's a little wet, and boy, what if it's not perfect? And we delay, and we delay, and then it's, he says it's the same thing in harvest. We wait, and we wait. Next thing we know, the harvest is lost because we waited. We delayed too long. Where does the tree fall? Where will it fall for you? Verse 5, he says, you, don't, you do not know what is the way of the wind. Verse 6, he just gives practical advice. He says, in the morning, sow your seed. Just go out and do it. Go sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I just wanted to touch on that passage a bit because I, I sense if, if you ever had a chance to hear from an older man speaking to you as a younger man or a younger woman, or an older woman speaking to a, to a younger woman, as they look back over their lives, what I hear Solomon in reflection saying, you know what, just live freely. Live generously. Live op- you know, just with an open hand with your possessions. Give yourself to the Lord's service. Don't wait. Because next thing you know, that opportunity has passed. And that, that opportunity is wasted. So how do we practically, as you think about that's not what we want. As I look at that passage, I say, you know what, I, I don't want to come to the end of life and say I have regrets or I feel like the tree fell the wrong way. So how do we capture a vision for, for what God wants for us? And my mind was drawn to, to Nehemiah. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. question for us to think about here is how do I get a vision for God's kingdom? And this is a very familiar story. I'm not going to read... Um, a lot of it, but I want to read some of the first parts of it here, and I want, I want us to think about how do we get a vision for God's kingdom. And for you, that vision should become personal. What's your personal vision for life in God's kingdom? What's your vision for your family as you're raising them in God's kingdom? What's your vision for Sandy Ridge or your home church if you're visiting this morning? What's your vision for your, where you work, your coworkers, or your business? What's your vision for the school that you're part of? So many things that we're involved in. And if, we don't, if we're not intentional about, about some of those things, we may find out that time passes, and you know what? We've missed a lot of opportunities, or possibly we're, we've been in the wrong race. I read, a, I read of an account, I know this has probably happened more than once, but you know, when you're playing football out in the, in the middle of the field, there's a lot of chaos going on in a football game. And it's happened before that in the middle of, you know, the defense is going after the offense, and there, there's a fumble, and the ball goes loose. And I've, I've heard of stories where a defensive uh, player has picked up the ball, and in his zeal to go score a touchdown for his team, he runs the wrong way. And he totally runs to the opposite line, and in one story at least, his teammate had to go tackle him just to prevent him from scoring for the other team. And you say, well, man, he ran with athleticism. He ran with enthusiasm. And, and he had a, it was a great play. He got the ball, but he ran the wrong way. We can have the energy. We can have the zeal. 
well, we've got to be running the right way. And so how do we know that, we're, that our life is, is, uh, is, is going in the right direction? How sad it would be to come to the end of life and have lived just a, a zealous life, but been, ch- been chasing some of the wrong things. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burnt with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I stopped there for a little bit. Nehemiah's got a pretty good job. I don't know how he got it. But he's with the king every day. Says he's the cupbearer. And if you remember the story of, of Esther and her husband Ahasuerus, you remember that it was life or death for her to approach the king uninvited? So even the queen had limitations. And yet somehow Nehemiah, as a Jew, is entrusted with being with the king. I don't know if it's all day, but at least when it's time to drink wine or the food or whatever in the serving of food, I'm guessing he's there. And somehow Nehemiah is entrusted with this position. It's a great, it's a great position if you think about that era. And at this time, uh, this whole realm, the empire, the, the Persian empire is huge. If you look at a map, this is the empire of the known world at that time. And to be next to the king like that is not only a very, it's a good position, it's a good job, but it's, it's probably fairly safe for him as long as he doesn't displease the king, but he's in a very comfortable place in life. And one day he hears from his brothers, fellow Jews that had been to Jerusalem, and he asks about the condition of the place. And when he hears that it's just, it's in bad shape, the walls are, they're torn down, the gates are, they're charred, they're burnt, it says that he wept and mourned certain days, and he fasted. <clears throat> um, I read somewhere that this was very likely about, I think it was, this is possibly about 91 years after um, King Cyrus had authorized Zerubbabel and others to go and restore the temple. So the captivity had actually ended quite a long time ago, and I don't know if Nehemiah thought that they had gone back and that there should have been good progress and, you know, Jerusalem is restored. But many years later, he finds out Jerusalem is still not restored. The walls are still broken. The gate is still, uh, it's burned. And uh, Josephus talks about this time. He says it really was a bad time in that area around Jerusalem. He says that uh, many of the neighboring nations were overrunning the country. They were pillaging, a lot of murder going on. It says they would come at night, bandits would come, they would take captives. Sometimes it says, Josephus says that sometimes the roads were full of dead men. It was a terrorizing time. And as Nehemiah hears the report that, you know, the the walls are broken. There is no place of safety for those who live there, for the remnant that's there, for the the Jews that, that had returned from exile. It's a bad time. It says he wept. He's very sorrowful. Let's go on to the next uh, part there. He says, verse 5, And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. 
Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power, and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. You see the agony as, as, um, as Nehemiah is, is praying, pouring out his heart to God. And I'd, like, I'd like to just make a few observations about as, as Nehemiah is, there, there's a vision forming, something that he's about to do. But I want you to see how it is that Nehemiah gets to the place. We already know the end of the story. We know that he goes and builds the wall, right? But how is it that Nehemiah is moved to pursue this vision? The first part of that, just have a few points I want to give you here. The first thing that Nehemiah did was he asked questions. He asked questions. As, these, as his brothers came in and they started to give a report, I believe Nehemiah asked them more What's going on? Like, tell me what's going on back in Jerusalem. And there's, I believe Nehemiah could have said in his, in his heart, oh, I don't, I, oh man, that sounds terrible. You know, I've got a, I've got a really good job here. I, I just, I don't want to, I just, I can't hear that. I just really don't want to, the more I know, the more it just pains me too much. I think I'll just, I think I'll just not ask any more questions. And um, I'm just going to, I'm going to see this as God's ultimate plan for my life. You know, clearly God put me here. I've got a good job, I'm in a good place, you know, I can influence the king, but I just, I don't want to hear more about that. But you don't see Nehemiah doing that. You see him asking the questions, and as he starts to hear of the problem, and as he starts to hear about the terrible things happening back in the home country, it starts to get him in his heart, and it says that he starts to weep, and he starts to mourn, and it drives him to fasting and prayer. I was thinking about what does it take for us to start developing a vision for what God wants. And I think one of those things is that we start to care. We start to ask those questions. You remember that song? It, it's been running through my mind the last two days here. It takes courage to care. That verse starts off, you, know, you can close your heart to others until heartache, no heartaches you will share. For to sympathize brings sorrow. Are you afraid to really care? And there is something about that that's true that it's easier sometimes to just not get involved. But when you, you see this in the heart of Nehemiah, and I think you'll see it probably of any person who has had a vision for God's kingdom, is at some point their heart gets moved by need. They see something, and they, they're burdened by it, and it starts to move their heart towards saying, I, I need to do something. But he starts off by asking questions. The next thing that happened, first he asked questions, and the second thing that began to happen was, he develops a burden. He develops a burden. Do you have a burden this morning? 
I found for myself that when there's times in life where I just feel like, you know, I don't even know what my vision is, it's because I'm not, I'm not really feeling much of anything inside. Or sometimes when we gather together for prayer on a Wednesday night, you know, I'm, I'm like, boy, what should we pray for? And I realize, you know, I, what do I have a burden for? Like, who am I passionately praying for that needs salvation? And I realize that when I just kind of close myself off, you know, those things just don't impact me. And I can kind of start living in my own little isolated world and say, you know, my life is about, you know, I've got my own little my sphere here, I've got my family, I've got my work, and I, I'm busy. But when we start getting involved in the lives of people, when we start hearing need, what happens to Nehemiah is suddenly he's got, he's got a burden in his heart, and he realized that something has to happen. Now, this is not a burden of sin. We all know what it's like to be released from sin at Calvary. What a blessing to have that burden of sin gone. But this is a burden that, that gets in a person's heart, and they realize that there is tremendous need here. Who is going to meet this need? And so he goes to the Lord. That's the theme you see throughout the book of Nehemiah. We're not going to get into the part where he faces opposition later, but it is fascinating as, as Nehemiah, as later when he's, when he's working on the vision and he's trying to accomplish it, and then all of a sudden he starts getting hit with all kinds of opposition. It says so many times that Nehemiah cried out to the Lord. It was, it was the Lord that stirred that vision and stirred that burden. It was the Lord that paved the way for it. And then when he's trying to accomplish it and he's facing all kinds of questions and it's not working out, it says he keeps going back to the Lord. So I want, I want you to catch that this morning, that the most important thing in, in developing a vision or in accomplishing a vision is that God has to be in the center of it. And what, what I think is so um, important here, as, as Nehemiah is getting this vision for going back and repairing the wall, this is a vision that is, is completely in line with God's purposes. Because he even quotes, it even, he even says he knows what God's promises were. He knows God had said, if you turn away from me, you know, I'm going to scatter you. But if you turn back to me, I'm going to restore you. So the vision Nehemiah is developing here is not something he pulled out of thin air. He didn't just one day think, you know what, it'd be a great idea to get Jerusalem rebuilt. No, he knew that was God's, that was God's intent. And the fact that so much time had elapsed and nothing was happening, it stirred him to say, God, I mean, do you care about this thing? You even promised this and it's not happening. And so as we develop a burden or as we get a vision for, for whatever God wants us to be doing in his kingdom, that vision should always align with God and his purposes. It's not something we just go off on our own, but it's, it's accomplishing what God has already called, or has, um, that he wants, something he wants to happen. And so Nehemiah, as, as he's praying, he's reminding God about, God, this is what you said. This is how you said you would deliver. But another thing I want you to notice as, as Nehemiah is praying as he's seeking the Lord, which is the third point. Uh, the second point was develop a burden. Third point is seek the Lord. As he's in this process of seeking the Lord, Nehemiah takes personal responsibility for the sin. That's pretty powerful to me. Uh, Nehemiah is far away from Jerusalem, and I don't know that he's old enough to have actually been carried away. I didn't check that out. I don't think so. From, from, uh, from Jerusalem back in the captivity. But he is owning the sin of the nation. He owns the sin of the nation. He says, it's the sin of my fathers. He says, we have sinned against you. And, and you start seeing Nehemiah, he's identifying with the plight of his people. No longer is he seeing himself as, I'm off here, and, you know, I'm in Persia, I'm safe, I'll just stay here with the king. But he's starting to feel the plight of his people. And when he goes to God, he reminds God of God's promises. 
but he also confesses sin and he includes himself as part of that problem. Lord, we've sinned. We've sinned. We need your help in this. He's being very moved uh, emotionally. I don't know that Nehemiah had ever been to Jerusalem before. I'm, I'm a little doubtful. So why should he care? But he did. He identifies with people and he reminds God of what God has promised. Part of us developing a vision for our lives is getting to know and feel the heart of God. God, what do you, th- what do you think about this? Do you care about this? And one prayer I've had before, and maybe you prayed this, uh, this prayer in, in, in your own way, but I have already asked God, Lord, uh, I've asked God to break my heart with the things that break your heart. How do we start to feel God's passion, his love for people? And how do we start to get in touch with those needs and be available then when that time comes that God wants to use us? But I think if we're, if we're going to insulate ourselves from these things, from need, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard for us to, to feel that. Every one of us can develop a burden. Uh, no matter where you're at in life, if you're a grandparent, you can still have a burden. You can have a burden to pray. You can have a burden to love. If you're a parent, you might feel you're so busy with your children. Well, that is, that is something to care about. That is something to have a burden about. What's going to happen with my children? How are they going to fare in this world? How am I going to prepare them? That, that is also a burden that, that a vision can spring out of. What are the things that Jesus cared about? You notice Jesus getting very emotional a few times in his ministry as he, as he looked over Jerusalem, from the, coming from the Mount of Olives, and as, as Jesus surveys Jerusalem, he weeps for the city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times did I wish I could just, ah, I wanted to love you, I wanted to gather you in. And basically, he's saying, you didn't let me. But Jesus cared about that. What do we care about? Jesus saw people as sheep without a shepherd. Like, these people need help. He had compassion. That's how we start getting a vision, when we start to see the world and people the way Jesus saw people. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Another man that had good intentions for God was David. Remember, he wanted to build a house for God. He also had a burden. God, I want to build a house that honors you. I want to give all my energy to building a house for you. But for him, God said, no, David, it's not going to be you. It's going to be your son. So there are times when we may feel a need and God may say, you know what? You're not the one for this need. So that's why we pray. Nehemiah prayed. He says he sought the Lord. And then it says he went before the king in chapter 2. Look at uh, the first verse there in chapter 2. It says, and it came to pass... In the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now, I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very afraid. Now think about it. Wouldn't you be afraid if your job was to cheer up the king? I think the king was drinking his wine to cheer up, right? And so you're the, you're the one bringing the wine. He's supposed to have a cheerful face and always be the, op, you know, the optimistic guy in the room. And, and he comes with a sad face. And when the king notices it, it actually puts fear in Nehemiah's heart. What does he say? He says, it said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? So he goes ahead and just spills it out. King, this is why I'm sad. My homeland is still, it's in ruins. The city is in ruins. 
Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven. I think this was probably a speedy prayer. I don't know that he bowed his head, but it says even in the moment, as he's standing before the king, Nehemiah just sends a prayer to heaven. God, help me with what I'm about to say. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be? When wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. And then he goes on to say everything else that he needs. At this point, Nehemiah starts this conversation really fearful because you're not supposed to be sad in the king's presence. But by the time the king opens that door of opportunity and says, well, what are you asking? Nehemiah has already been thinking this whole thing through. I think as he was praying through it, he realized, you know what? There's, there's going to be a tremendous amount of need. First of all, travel back to Jerusalem. You're going to be going through a lot of territory. There's going to be a lot of governors. There's going to be a lot of areas where anybody could stop you along the way and, and say, no, you're not, you're not going anywhere. So I'm going to have to have safe passage if I do this. And furthermore, we're going to have to have a lot of building materials. And it says he mentions the keeper of the forest by name, Asaph. I don't know if Nehemiah knew Asaph or if he just knew about him because he was in the king's court. But he already knew who the guy was. He says, can you let Asaph know we're going to have to have a lot of timber because we're going to have to build walls, we're going to have to build gates, and we're going to have to build a house for me to live in or for, you know, whoever else needs, needs, uh, needs stuff here. So as Nehemiah has been praying through this thing, he actually has developed a plan. And I thought that was interesting, that there are times when we're, when we're trying to seek, we're trying to figure out what God wants us to be doing. And as we're trying to figure out, well, where should I be involved in God's kingdom? There's so many opportunities and, and so many things, and you just, you can't do them all, but where do I, where do I go? And so Nehemiah kind of makes some, he makes some moves, and the doors kept opening, and the door for the king, for the conversation with the king opened up. And then the conversation of, well, sure, but how long are you going to be gone opens up. And then what are you going to need opens up. And before you know it, he leaves the king's presence with a complete plan of action. And it's because he prayed, he fasted, he sought the Lord. He was moved by the need. And as he prayed this thing through, it aligned with, with God's purposes and what God wanted. And when those doors opened, I think Nehemiah hit the door running. He was, he was prepared. But that was a process. And as, as we think about our own lives, and as you think about, oh, I don't even know what my vision is. Maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you're in the middle of a vision. And you're in the middle of, you know, God has clearly put me here, and I, and I know what I'm about. You might be somewhere else in that process. But th I want to appeal to you this morning. If you don't have a clear sense of, of what God wants you to be doing, and you hear the warnings of Solomon, and you say, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the one who, where the tree falls, and, and then he has regrets, and wondering about, why did I waste my life? But if you're, if you're not sure, I would encourage you to take Nehemiah's model and start to feel that burden of need. Ask God for a burden. God, what do you, what do you care about? What's, what's missing in our community? What is being missed right here? Because obviously we've all been placed here. God has put each one of us here for a reason. And there's plenty of need to go around. And yet we can easily live our lives and completely miss what's going on. So I would encourage you this morning, if you're not sure what God wants you to be doing in your life, start by praying for a burden. God, what do you care about? Is there something I should do about this? And we start praying through that. We seek the Lord through that. We pray. 
ask questions, start to learn more. And as that burden begins to build, pray. And if God opens up a door, you're prepared. Your heart is prepared. I think it's a good point there where he made a plan. He started to think about, well, if I do this, what might this mean for me? How do I have to prepare myself? God can always close those doors. But begin by developing a burden. And if, to, if this morning, if you're a person who says, well, I don't feel like I'm a visionary. I don't know that to this point in my life, I don't feel like I've been living out of a strong sense of purpose. I would encourage you this morning, it's, maybe it's not so important where you're at today, but, but where are you going to head? Where are you going to go from now? Because we can always choose today that this is, this is the path that I want to walk. I want to walk with the Lord. I want Him to be the one that's directing my, my steps and my, my decisions. And I want to have my purpose to always be aligned with, with His purposes. And I want to be a builder in God's kingdom and in, and in the church. It's time to close here. I would like to just briefly yet draw attention to the opposition that Nehemiah faced. I'm not going to read any of the passages, but as you go through chapters 4 through 6 of Nehemiah, you know, Nehemiah had such clear confirmation of the vision of his purpose. And he sets off, I think, with enthusiasm. But when he got there, he started getting some pushback. He got all kinds of resistance. First of all, he was mocked. What does that feel like? especially people that know you well. And maybe you say, hey, you know what? I, f- I feel like maybe, maybe God's calling me to this. And they're like, no, that, that's not you. Maybe you've not experienced that personally. I don't know. But ridicule was the first line of attack against Nehemiah. And the guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, the, the guys in the area there, they basically said, you guys build, a, you're not a builder. You guys start building the wall. You know, a fox is going to run on this wall and knock the thing down. Well, Nehemiah takes that to the Lord. Well, that didn't work, and so the opposition comes back a little stronger, and it's more than just mocking, but it's strategizing that, hey, we're going to stop these guys, and they threaten to come and actually attack them. Nehemiah gets word. They have to set up defenses. They have to work, you know, holding weapons and working with the other hand, and there's so many things that keep coming up. They try to lure him out of the city to have a meeting. Hey, you need to come out and, and meet. We've got to talk some things over here. In fact, we're going to be telling the king back home that uh, we found out you're going to actually become king here and, you know, you have your own agenda for this project. And what does Nehemiah do? He keeps coming back to, first of all, he goes to God, but he comes back to the original thing and says, you know what, that's not even true. I know that's not true. I'm not going to be distracted. And there are, there are so many things in our lives that, will, that can distract us from our purpose. And even when we, when we come up against opposition, uh, maybe wherever you're, whatever capacity you're serving God right now, maybe it's a position here at church, or whatever you're involved in right now, when we start facing opposition, it can cause us sometimes to question, well, I don't even know why I'm doing this. I mean, clearly, with all the opposition, this must not be where God wants me. But Nehemiah didn't lose sight. And I think, I wonder how many times Nehemiah thought back and said, it was so clear back there. I mean, I prayed. I asked the Lord. He opened the doors. I remember when we moved to Belize. This is, man, it's almost 20 years ago. Can't believe it. Right, Lila? I remember being there about three weeks. We'd moved, you know, we have this sense of purpose. About three weeks in, one time on a Saturday morning, I, I was just, I was so discouraged. And I was listening to, I was listening to some music, and this, this song came on. And I, I don't even remember what the title of the song was, but I just started crying, you know, and I just felt discouraged. I was like, I don't even know why I'm here. But there's so many times where no matter what you're doing, even if you're, even if you're 
you're in God's plan. We feel that way sometimes, and we start to question, well, I don't, I don't think this is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing. But we look back and say, wait a minute, where did God move? How did God get me here to this point? We say, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. And then we cry out to the Lord say, Lord, I know I'm supposed to be here. It's not feeling very good right now, but I want you to get me through this thing. And as Nehemiah faced opposition again and again and again, he went to the Lord. He went back to his purpose. He examined what is true in all this, and he stuck with it. And you know what? The Bible says the wall was built in 52 days. 52 days. And when they came to the end of the project, and when the wall was built, the defenses were up, it says, and I can't quote it directly, the nations around them, basically their hearts were the ones that melted. Oh, they were the ones that brought the opposition. But when they saw, it says they, they knew that God had finished the work. The testimony of Nehemiah was, this was not my agenda. I'm doing God's work. And so if I'm doing God's work and I stick with that, eventually God validated that. And it says the wall was built and those that were around had to say, that was God. That was God. Maybe you're feeling that this morning with what you're involved with. Maybe you're feeling like there's opposition and you're discouraged with the different things that come up. I would encourage you to take courage this morning if that's where you're at. Take that to the Lord. Ask the Lord, Lord, show me again. How did I get here? Am I, am I where you want me to be? And if I am, give me courage. If I need to course correct, show me the way. But I believe God, I don't think God makes his purposes for us obscure. I don't believe God intentionally hides it so that we're always wondering. But sometimes it is obscure so that we have to depend on him and so that we have to seek his face and and pursue him to know what is the thing that I should be involved in. How do you want to come to the end of your life? Remember the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 11. In the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. Paul talked about this also in, in the New Testament thinking about building a life. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. It's such, it's such a picture of the end of life. Whatever, you've, whatever foundation you built on, whatever the sum total of your life is, he says it's going to be tried with fire. And for some, it will endure because their purpose in life was God. It was his kingdom. That's where they built. He says for others... It was maybe a full life, but it wasn't meaningful. Wood, hay, straw, he says, it'll burn up, and they're going to just, just make it. Just make it. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, going back to the illustration of the, the woman running the race, running the marathon. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, you see, that's, that's the key to vision, is when you have your eye on the goal, you're running towards that goal. But in the Christian life, he says, yeah, get rid of all the baggage as you're running. 
But look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Remember that Jesus also did it. He also ran a race, and he never lost sight of the goal. He's our example, and he's our hope. Shall we bow our heads to pray? Father, I don't know where everyone is at in their lives this morning. There may be some here this morning that are struggling to even have a vision. They don't know where they're headed. They don't have a clear sense of what the journey of the Christian life really means and maybe don't have a clear sense of where they're going. Or maybe they're here this morning like I have been and don't feel much, don't feel a burden for the lost, don't feel a burden for uh, what is needed in your kingdom and growing your kingdom building there. There may be those who are in the middle of pursuing that vision and are discouraged. They know they've been called, but they're finding it really difficult, and they're finding it easy to question whether or not they're in the right place. Lord, wherever we're at this morning, I would ask, Lord, that you would help us to have clarity. Lord, help us to see Nehemiah, the model of Nehemiah, and the way he was moved by need the way he sought you fervently, fasting and praying. And Lord, the way he was courageous to step forward when the doors opened. And also, Lord, to not lose sight of his purpose when, when opposition came. Lord, we're, we all see ourselves somewhere in that story, I believe, this morning. And I just pray, Lord, wherever we're at in that story, Lord, would you give us courage? Would you stir up a vision, Lord? Give us a burden for the things that you care about. Help us grieve for the things that you grieve over, Lord, and rejoice in the things that you rejoice over. And I pray that, Lord, as a, as a church, Lord, we would be um, all in in building your kingdom in this place that you've put us. And, Lord, through this all, we want you to receive honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.